For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. And thank you for joining another episode of Battleground Florida. I am Christopher Heath coming to you from the Parish Healthcare Podcast Studio here in Orlando, Florida at WFTV. Our guest today, Tia Mitchell, she works up in Atlanta for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a sister paper of WFTV. And of course, somebody I've crossed paths with several times back when you were here in the Sunshine State. How's Atlanta treating you, Tia? Atlanta has been really great. I've been here for about two years and I love it. You're about to move to D.C., though. You're trading, you traded in the Florida swamp for Hotlanta, which you will trade in for the D.C. swamp, correct? Exactly. Um, the HAC has hired me to become their Washington correspondent. So I'm in transition already. I've been spending, you know, a week at a time in D.C., but I'll be moving for good by the end of the year. And yes, covering Georgia's congressional delegation and just national issues, of course, for a Georgia audience. You and I crossed paths a couple of times, but most memorably, um, I was there when you almost got kicked out of a um, out of an all-you-can-eat buffet that uh, Congresswoman <laughs> Corinne Brown was hosting an event at, and uh, she ordered all the media to leave, and you were like, I don't think we're going anywhere. And she's like, yeah, you're leaving. I don't, and here was my concern about that. Number one, they invited us in the first place. Remember, it was raining that day, and they wanted to do a news conference. So they said, come to this restaurant. And on top of that, I was planning to eat lunch. I was like, how are you kicking me out? And I'm a paying customer. Give you, a do- give you a refund in a doggy bag and ask you to politely. Yeah, it was, I what I remember I about. I didn't even get a chance to eat, you know, and it's like, but I really am a paying customer. Like, I'm not just saying that. Yeah. And her, do you know how people called the editor of the Times Union back in Jacksonville? to like tell on me and they threatened to call the police and it was it was a little bit of a hot mess so we decided to leave but I do not think that was fair even all these years later. I remember we were all standing around and I was there and I think Gary Finout from uh, he was with the Associated Press at the time he's now over at Politico he was standing there too we're all like ooh T is gonna get arrested this is it (laughs) so cooler cooler heads prevailed Uh, the other thing I remember about that day besides it being cold and rainy in Tallahassee is that um, Karen Brown was mired in all sorts of legal problems that ultimately caught up with her but she began the press conference by saying my attorney doesn't want me to do this and I'm thinking oh oh yeah that's yeah, if you're turning, my doctor says I shouldn't eat this, but no, 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 you should probably listen to them. So, oh, but you know, you've moved on. You're now in Atlanta and you're getting ready because tomorrow night, Wednesday night, will be the uh, Democratic debate. And every Democrat that wants to win is now in Atlanta trying to court not just Democratic voters, but specifically black voters, because we're going to see the primaries in the Democratic race start to get a lot more diverse once we get through Iowa and New Hampshire. That's true. And it's interesting. Um, only 10 candidates qualified for the debate. 
But even candidates who aren't going to be on the debate stage are in Atlanta this week and hosting events around the city. And that's the thing, you know, Atlanta is the cradle of the civil rights movement. It's a city with a lot of history, but also a very diverse city, not just with African-Americans, but you've got um, a big Latino population. You've got a big immigrant community. So by and large, people are coming to Atlanta. Um, of, of course, the candidates are coming for the debate, but they're using this setting to kind of make their push, make their um, their outreach particularly for African-American audiences. There are so many events being held at the historically black colleges here in Atlanta, churches. They're really making the play for black voters, which is, as you mentioned, an essential voting bloc. It's, it's nearly impossible to win the Democratic nomination without the support of a plurality of African-Americans. Pete Judge holding an event over at Morehouse College. I'm reading one of your articles you posted here on the AJC, and you have Amy Klobuchar holding events, and you mentioned Stacey Abrams in this. Is she a bit of a kingmaker in Georgia? Absolutely. You know, um, last week I was in D.C., and Stacey Abrams was there speaking at the National Press Club, and she mentioned that just about all of the leading candidates have asked her for an endorsement, which she has declined to do. She, she has chosen at this point to stay out of the of the primary and kind of let voters decide, but they're asking for her support. Of course, you know, she's had conversations with candidates about being a potential running mate, and they name check her all the time. You know, last night at a Mayor Pete's event, he said, you know, I firmly believe that without voter suppression, uh, Stacey Abrams would be the governor of Georgia, and and you'll see candidates kind of mention that, mention her, because she does remain not only prominent here in the Atlanta area where she resides, but she's one of the highest profile Democrats in the nation right now. How much can you see candidates going down there and making those inroads? You, Pete Buttigieg, I mentioned having the event at Morehouse College, Amy Klobuchar ho- holding events there as well. Um, is, is that just pro forma for when you do come to Atlanta, you have to do these things? Or is this a concerted effort for candidates that don't have that deep bench, that deep support from the African-American community to go out there and say, listen, give me a look. I, I may not be your top candidate, but at least give me a look. I mean, I think, you know, it is good form when you come to Atlanta to to outreach to African-American voters in, in particular. They're doing a lot of things. You know, their African-American outreach is just one component of this trip to Atlanta. But I think it's important. But I think what African-American voters are looking for is not just lip service. And that's one of the things that came up last night with Mayor Pete's event. You know, um, he still has a challenge connecting, particularly with young uh, black voters that were, you know, you're at Morehouse College, you're, these are a bunch of college students, and they weren't um, sold. They were open, and they wanted to hear more, but they weren't sold, you know, and um, I spoke to a political science professor who's at Howard University and HBCU in Washington, D.C., and um, she mentioned that, you know, there has to be authenticity um, behind the message. It has to come across as genuine. It cannot come across as forced or pandering because black voters will pick up on that and that won't earn you their vote. 
And if anything else, I mean, we look at the the, the Democratic base, and, and there's you know there's so many articles already been written about how you know white college educated voters are, are really driving the Democratic base. But you know, if if you don't have that wide support from the African American community, you're not getting out of the primary. And that's in so many ways when you crack open Joe Biden's numbers, that's one of the things you see over and over again is he does have that very deep support within the African American community, which is why you look at states like South Carolina and you say. That's a state he will do very well in because this is a voting block that is traditionally Democratic and, for now, is firmly behind the former vice president. Right. And that's why he's considered the front runner. He has all along, despite, you know, some missteps and some challenges, which, you know, any career politician, the longer you've been in politics, the more ammo folks have against you. And so Joe Biden. Is, is is experiencing that just by virtue of how many decades he spent in public office. And so he has challenges, particularly, again, among young black voters as well, who are concerned about his treatment of Anita Hill, his record on criminal justice reform, um, and quite frankly, young African-American voters who say that there are um, dreams uh, deferred or not fully actualized during the Obama-Biden administration. And so, but even with those challenges, because his support, particularly amongst older African-Americans, is pretty solid, and so far they aren't really wavering from that, Joe Biden has been comfortably considered the front runner. And barring a surge from another candidate or barring a big, big gaffe by Joe Biden, I don't see that changing, but we have to remember the first primaries aren't until February. Yeah. You know, we've got, there's still a lot of time. No, we'll have the Iowa caucuses. We'll have New Hampshire. We'll have South Carolina. We'll have Nevada. I mean, Georgia doesn't vote until the 24th, March the 24th. And so, you know, narratives can change real quickly. You look at somebody like Pete Buttigieg, if he wins in Iowa and finishes first or a very competitive second in New Hampshire, and then does better than a distant third or fourth or fifth in North or in South Carolina, all of a sudden he's somebody that may be seen as viable. Again, polling's fine, but only thing that really matters is when we start seeing votes come in, and that's when you can see races start to change. That's right. And the concern, you know, um, last week in D.C., I also um, attended an event where Stacey Abrams had a chat with former President Obama. And it was at um, the Democracy Alliance Conference, which is a meeting of, like, these Democratic mega donors. And one of the things that Obama addressed at that meeting was that there is a lot of angst that that there are so many candidates. And, and even though Joe Biden is the front runner, he's not running away with a thing. You know, people aren't dropping out because it's still like anybody's game. And that concerns, you know, these donors who are, who kind of, make up the financial base of the party, like, because there's no coalescing around one candidate yet. And what President Obama said is, like, it's too early to be worried about that. Let it shake out. Let some primaries happen. But what could happen is if by Super Tuesday we aren't down to, you know, one or two clear candidates, what does that mean? And that's why here in Georgia it might be interesting, because if if we still have four or five candidates after Super Tuesday, then Georgia, one of the later primary states, but one of the larger remaining primary states, really becomes in play. And so we're wondering if Georgia's going to be a big focus during primary season. 
In 2016, Hillary Clinton got 71% of the primary vote over Bernie Sanders. He carried 28%. Not a great number, but I mean, not, uh, decent enough for Sanders. Um, and the polling that is most recent out of Georgia, and I'm seeing not a whole lot that's super current, but Biden with a pretty good lead, Warren Sanders, and it falls off from there. Um, again, much like Florida, because it is it is a little further down the line, could be a state that helps to knock out some of these candidates that are polling in the low single digits and shape up the race for that home stretch. Right. We actually just had an AJC poll um, recently, and Biden was in the lead, um, but it wasn't, again, it's, it's not like he just was running away with it. And so, and again, this is what, six months, <laughs> six months prior. And what, what another thing we did in our AJC poll is we did head-to-head matchups where we uh, gave the voters a scenario of Trump versus the various Democratic candidates. And Joe Biden did run strongest against Trump in that poll, where 51% of voters to 43% said they would support him. And that's all voters, not just Democrats. Um, other matchups between Mayor Pete Buttigieg, U.S. Senator Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren were tighter, but it still showed President Trump in trouble. And we're hearing a lot from voters that, unlike maybe previous Democratic primaries, this year they're very concerned about choosing a candidate who can beat Trump in November. I've heard that from so many Democratic voters when I've gone to different events. Pete Buttigieg held an event here in Orlando, and I would talk to them, and they were obviously there to see Pete Buttigieg and maybe hear what he had to say. And you would ask them, well, listen, is he your candidate? They're like, yeah, I really like him, but, you know, I just want to beat President Trump. And I keep thinking to myself, this is the pragmatic side of, of the Democratic voters. They're all looking out at this field and saying, okay, I like this one, I like this one, but I, I, the only one thing that matters is can you win in November? And that gets to be a very tough decision because you're trying to not just figure out which one you think can win, but which one your fellow voters will also get behind. Yeah, and I do think there is a little bit of divide in the party on that. You know, I do think that's the overwhelming consensus. But again, um, you've heard uh, both Hillary Clinton last night and, Mayor, and President Obama last week talk about the activist wing of the party. And the, the there's a component of the party that's represented by those who really want reform. They really want the government structure to be dismantled and recreated in a way that they think better reflects, you know, the vision of progressive voters. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders kind of represent that arm of the party. And they're doing well in the polls. They're usually running, you know, two, second and third. And, um, you know, there's concern amongst more moderate things if you, if you, nominate the far, you know, the more progressive candidates. If they win the nomination, it'll be harder to beat Trump. But again, that activist wing in the party is saying we need to nominate people who we truly think have the ideals and vision of what we want the presidency to be. And so I do think that's part of the conflict and why there are so many candidates hanging around to see where it takes out and hopefully they can kind of become, you know, 
the consensus candidate, you know, meet in the middle. But I do think that's something that, you know, the Democratic Party being the big, big tent party is now struggling with these various um, visions for which way the party should go this year. One of the things that has has bubbled to the surface, and it's one of those topics that is always hard to discuss because you, especially for for me, there's a hard frame of reference to try and go at it with, is you hear this rumbling that, well, listen, the African-American community will not support Mayor Pete because he's openly gay. And you've heard that rumbling in various corners, and there's been pushback from some within the African-American community. Is there is there any way to kind of have a touchstone to say, is there validity to this, or is this just something that is a talk, talking point that's been tossed out there and it's really not supported? So I actually explored this um, last week, I think, in our Morning Jolt newsletter. The AJC has a political newsletter Monday through Friday. And right when it was kind of becoming a, a topic, I wrote about it. And it's almost, the concern is that it's unfair to say black voters are uncomfortable with a gay candidate. What is the truth of the matter is that folks who identify themselves as Christians or folks who identify themselves as having conservative values from a lifestyle standpoint have a problem with having a gay nominee or a gay president. Now, black people are, are more likely to identify as religious. But again, it's the virtue of those who identify as religious who have a problem with a gay candidate, not necessarily by virtue of being black. And so that's, to me, what the nuance is sometimes lost in that. Now, that being said, if there, again, because it's hard to win the nomination for the Democratic Party without a plurality of black voters, and if in certain states, let's say South Carolina, that plurality of black voters use older, use more religious, then yes, it'll be more difficult because for them, that's a, that's something that they said, you know, having a gay candidate un- uncomfortable with. But I think that will vary state by state, again, because we know that the trend in America, period, is that people are less religious these days. Um, again, less so in the black community, but generally speaking, folks are less religious and less likely to have kind of those value issues come into play. So I think it's a little bit overblown. Um, by Mayor Pete's campaign. I think he was trying to come up with a reason why he's not polling well in South Carolina. And I think the bigger challenge for Mayor Pete in South Carolina is Joe Biden. Yeah, Joe Biden, I mean, he can he can run as somebody who has just extensive contacts within the black community and has 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 that resume to point to. Oh, and by the way, the first black president thought highly enough of me to make me his running mate twice. So, you know, that, that, that tends to carry a lot of weight. He's put in the legwork in these places and that, and that's something you can definitely run on. Right. And that's the thing. He's been visiting South Carolina since 2008, you know, as far as running national campaigns. So they're familiar with him. They already, you know, and they've been watching him as vice president for eight years you know, watched him toy with running again in 2016, you know, so again, the Biden ground game is already solid in um, South Carolina. Meanwhile, Buttigieg is, you know, just his national profile is just a few months old and voters still don't know much about him, you know, so he's having to start from scratch in South Carolina. 
What do you make of, and I know we trying to, we tend to think of voters as being these homogeneous like groups that all, all one specific group will go in lockstep this way and all one will go this way. And, you know, they're, they're going to be more drawn to candidates that look like them in the mirror. But we've yet to see either Cory Booker or Kamala Harris really break out from the pack, even though they both are African-American and they've yet to kind of get that. Is that partly that they haven't connected in those communities or is that partly because you do have Joe Biden who has coalesced so much of that support around himself and i again it's joe biden is an issue because a lot of african americans are already supporting joe biden i do think this also is a great example to you know once and for all let's kill the myth that black people will vote for the black candidate no matter what black people of course who are going to give a black candidate a fair chance they're going to want to support the black candidate but that's not automatic. It's not universal. And so, and, and I think that's a lot of times, you're like, oh, well, black folks are just supporting Obama because he's black or Stacey Abrams because she's black. And if I know they had to earn that support just like any other candidate. And what Kamala Harris and Cory Booker are learning is that it is difficult to change the minds of folks who already have a candidate in mind. They are kind of working to connect, you know, Kamala Harris, you know, I think her, it's tough because she's coming from a criminal justice background and has to deal with kind of explaining her record as a prosecutor, which can be difficult. Criminal justice issues are very important to black voters, but also she's a woman and she's got to toe the line. You can't come too strong. You can't come too soft. You can't, you know, and so she's got a different set of kind of Things she has to manage as a black female candidate. Um, I think Cory Booker just is having a harder time connecting with voters. Um, but Kamala is just having a harder time getting her foot in the door with voters who just kind of look at her resume and say, oh, I don't know about her. Um, but again, a big issue is Joe Biden already came in with a lot of support of black voters. And, you know, the, the conventional wisdom being that people do move in lockstep, you, we, we, we should have learned that lesson in 2008 when the McCain campaign assumed that, you know, all the all the female voters that were dismayed by Hillary Clinton losing to Barack Obama in the primary would j- naturally jump ship and vote for them once they nominated Sarah Palin as their running mate. Obviously, that didn't happen. So, but we continue to kind of harken back that, oh, no, this this is what voters will do, even though we keep getting proven wrong time and time again. This is the other thing that I find interesting about Georgia is that in the same way that we are going to lift up, we're going to lift up the hood of the American voter and take a look and see, you know, underneath the underneath the, the surface what what we've got there. And we're going to look out at, at New Hampshire and say, okay, this is what the Northeast is kind of moving as. And then we're going to go to South Carolina and say, okay, this is what the, you know, a, a larger chunk of the African-American population is going to go with. And then we're going to go to Nevada and we're going to say, okay, here's the Hispanic population. Maybe this is what they're interested in. But again, Georgia could be that, that next uh, data point along the way that says, here is where this huge chunk of a base for the Democratic Party is and once again, will reveal what the party's all about and where the nominees are and could very well help knock out the last couple of candidates and, and get this down to a one or two person race. Right. I do. I mean, it would be interesting for us at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for sure for vote for Georgia to not just be kind 
kind of an afterthought primary. You know, if everything's kind of settled, then, you know, it won't be as exciting here come primary day. But if it's still a toss-up, that means, and, and there aren't a lot of primaries around the time of Georgia's primary, so that just means there will be so much focus, so much attention on what voters in Georgia are thinking, saying, doing, even leading up to primary day. And again, what Georgia offers, particularly in the metro Atlanta area, because it is so diverse and it is so historic. And there are these places, you know, you can come to a Spelman or a Morehouse College or to the, the Big Bethel Historic Church downtown or to Ebenezer, which is the former church home of Martin Luther King, you know, and have these events and really send a message that resonates nationwide really means we expect to see candidates coming back to Georgia. One of the things I want to ask you about, because you did you did spend a lot of time in Florida, a state that is considered to be a purple state, a toss-up state, even though at the state level Republicans hold sway from the governor's mansion to both the Senate and the House. You look at Georgia same way. You have a Republican governor. Uh, the Georgia General Assembly is dominated in both chambers by Republicans. I think it's 35-21 in, in, uh, in the upper chamber, and in the House it is, uh, what, 103-75. So, again, is, is Georgia a purple state in the same way Florida's a purple state? That is to say, toss-up-ish, but leans Republican. I still think Georgia— so- Florida has examples of Democrats winning statewide. You know, Obama carried Florida twice. And up until recently, Bill Nelson was running well statewide. He just kind of lost steam um, against Rick Scott for reasons that I think go beyond party. Um, So Florida has more of a recent history of Democrats winning statewide. And I think is truly a purple state. Although, um, you know, Stacey Abrams is what has put Georgia in play. She showed that there is a winning formula and she came so close, you know, and that is what has Republicans saying you cannot ignore Georgia. Yes, um, there has not been a Democrat who has won statewide office in Georgia in, in, in many, many years. You know, and, and once Republicans kind of took over the legislature during that wave in the 70s and 80s, things changed. Um, in the South, um, but Stacey Abrams came so close. And what also she did is she activated voters in record numbers, like more people voted for her than voted for, you know, Hillary Clinton and, and things in Barack Obama, even, you know, so she was bringing out voters who, who were not normally part of the process. And when you're able to do that and the numbers show that if those trends, and, you know, she says, you know, if she can address some of the voter issues that she's raised, um, there could be a Democrat who wins statewide in Georgia. And that's why she says she has told all the candidates to ask her for their endorsement. She tells them, don't ignore Georgia. Georgia is a state much like Arizona that a couple of years ago, nobody really looked at as being a competitive state uh, on a national level. And yet this cycle, I think you can very easily say Georgia and Arizona will both be in that toss up category where somebody can go out and win it. And a kind of like Arizona and very much unlike Florida, you know, you go into Georgia and you want to be competitive politically. Obviously, you have the Atlanta media market, and of course, you've got some other media markets around the way. It's not as expensive as buying airtime in Florida. 
in to buy in Georgia. So you, you do have that little lower price point to go in there and maybe try and pick up some of those electoral votes if that's attainable. And it definitely seems like this cycle, you know, the candidates, especially if, if it's the right kind of candidate that fits that, that demographic of Georgia, they could go in there and make a really hard play for a state that President Trump carried just a couple of years ago. That's right. And also, that's another thing that Stacey Abrams taught. She visited, Georgia has a lot of counties, like I think over 100. I don't know the exact amount. And she visited every single one, even in the most rural Republican parts of the state where no one expected her to even come close. But as a result of reaching out and sending a message that she wants every single vote that she can get, um, not just in Democratic strongholds, is part of the reason why she performs so well on Election Day. You know, so again, she's sending the message that if you show Georgia voters across the state, not just in Atlanta, not just in Savannah, um, that you're serious about their vote, the right candidate, even a Democrat, could possibly carry the state. One of the things that, in, in another state that's very similar to that that seems to be moving in a new direction is, of course, Texas. And, you know, so many people pointed to Beto O'Rourke doing very well against Ted Cruz, even though he lost. But one of the things that gets lost in that is Ted Cruz was not particularly popular nationwide. And even in Texas, where Republicans hold sway, he was not particularly popular. Stacey Abrams still had a decent fight on her hands in so much as she wasn't running against somebody with the kind of negative uh, name ID that Ted Cruz did. She had to do a lot of this on her own. Right. She, yeah, she, you know, Stacey Abrams was a Democratic leader in the Georgia General Assembly, but she did not have the highest profile. You know, most, most legislators don't have the highest profile, even, you know, the Speaker of the House or the Senate President, you know, that's just, legislators just don't have big statewide profiles. And she was the minority leader at that. So yes, she did have to go into these new areas and explain herself, explain what she stood for. And she did not run from some of the, you know, more liberal um, policies. For example, Medicaid expansion, criminal justice reform, again, the voter reform that we that she continues to talk about. She did not shy away from that message even when she went into places that historically have not been open to, you know, Democratic candidates. And I think that's another lesson for Stacey Abrams is to be consistent in your message no matter where you go. And she says that, you know, of course, you have to keep your audience in mind. And she said you have to meet them where they are. So, you know, you're speaking to an audience that's not big on Medicaid expansion. You have to explain your position and also try to explain to them why you think they should not be, um, wary of that position, but she didn't change her message. She didn't mute her message as she tried to build that profile and build, you know, um, leave behind a legacy of what she wanted voters to know her as. And as we've started to see the electorate shift more than anything along um, education lines where, you know, people with a college education tend to be more Democratic, people without a college education tend to be more more Republican. You know, Georgia is just below the national average. I think uh, it's 29.9 percent of Georgia has a bachelor's degree. The average in the United States is 30.9. So just about a point behind. And that definitely speaks to two things. The education level of the state has increased. It's also, too, 
You've seen places like Atlanta where you've seen that growth of people moving there for some of these better paying, a little higher tech jobs that require a little bit more advanced education. And that has helped to shift the state along educational lines. Right. And, and the other thing that's shifting is as Atlanta, you know, becomes this place of people highly educated, well-paid, it's expensive to live here. And so the suburbs are sprawling further out because now even that first ring of suburbs is expensive. And so now we have a second ring of suburbs. And that has shown, you know, Lucy McBath won Newt Gingrich's old congressional seat. You know, she flipped it blue last year. And um, the District 7 seat, which is another kind of suburban Atlanta district, U.S. Rep. Rob Woodall, narrowly won re-election last year by just like 500 votes he is not running again and and of course there are many democrats and republicans in the race but it's one of the big seats the democrats hope to pick up in 2020 so that that convergence of the, the atlanta metro area even there are counties now kind of that were considered rural just a few years ago that are now considered part of the atlanta metro area one and two are kind of like in play, kind of slowly turning bluer. Yeah. Listen, David Perdue is up for election. And I think what, there's like six or seven Democrats that have declared already to run against him. So that could definitely be a race that depending on what kind of coattails the president has or does not have heading into 2020, that could be a state that Democrats look at and say, if we ever want to flip the Senate back to our side, we're going to have to do, we're going to have to pick up a place like a David Perdue seat. And, you know, there, there's another place where you could see them dumping some resources and paying some attention. Absolutely. As well as um, Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson has decided to retire. He has Parkinson's disease and he said it's time for him to, you know, retire, focus on his health. And so, of course, Governor Brian Kemp will be appointing someone to um, fill out the seat until the special election is held in 2020. And then there'll be another race when Isaacson's term ends in 2022. So that's another seat that, again, there will be a, an incumbent. We assume Governor Kemp will pick a Republican to fill the seat, but that person will have to run immediately in 2020. And there are already Democrats eyeing that seat as well. There haven't been many that have raised their hands because they're trying to wait to see who will be Kemp's pick for the seat first. But so Georgia will have not only the presidential race, two Senate races, as well as every congressional race on the ballot in 2020. So yes, it's a lot going on politically in Georgia. Now would be a very good time to get into ad sales, political ad sales in the greater Atlanta metro area. Yes, I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm sure by, you know, that that presidential primary, and then we have the regular primary in May, and then Georgia does runoff, and so there could be runoff, and then the general election, and then there could be runoff after that, because the Isaacson seat is a winner-take-all, so if none of the candidates, and there, we expect there will be many, if none of them receive 50 percent, there'll be a runoff in January 2021. So a lot of elections happening in Georgia. 
Tia, we picked the wrong business. You and I could be very, very wealthy people if only if only we were on the other side. Okay, so you are you are obviously there in Atlanta. Um, what is what is your game plan for this debate on Wednesday night, um, the Democratic debate? What is what is your game plan for that? So, and um, you know, the debate is hosted by MSNBC and Washington Post, but the AJC has planned a lot of like wraparound coverage. I'm really excited about it. So we'll be doing um, live shows um, starting an hour before the debate. I'll be hosting um, a portion of our live show around um, 8.30. The debate starts at 9. So you can tune in to AJC.com or our Facebook page. If you look up the AJC on Facebook, we'll be streaming live prior to the debate. And then after the debate, and of course, I'll be live We'll have a live blog hosted by me during the debate on AJC.com. So if you aren't able to watch or you just want to kind of see some running commentary as you watch, keep it um, locked into AJC.com. And then after the debate, I'm so excited. I'll be in the spin room grabbing folks and doing a live show after the debate, starting around the debate's supposed to end around 11, around 11.15. We're planning to go live from the spin room, getting reaction from the folks who are um, supporting various candidates to see, and, and those different pundits to see what they think, how the candidates performed. There will be 10 candidates on stage in just two hours for this debate. Ugh. So I think it's going to move fast. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, the panelists are all women. And so that'll, uh, that could bring an interesting kind of, um, an interesting way that they approach their questions. We're looking really forward to seeing kind of some of the things that haven't come up as much in the previous debates about the Me Too movement, about climate change, um, you know, voter suppression, because Stacey Abrams has raised that a lot. Really interested to see if those questions come up. And so, and again, all week, I'll be going back and forth. Stacey Abrams is speaking right now in an event hosted by the Democratic National Committee. I'm going to try to sneak in there quickly, and then um, we're doing a walkthrough of the debate venue later on this afternoon. And so it's just busy, 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 but I'm so excited. All your listeners, please follow me on Twitter, at Tia Reports, Facebook. Tune into AJC.com because we're bringing you so much coverage this week. Yeah, you guys are going to be all over this thing. I mean, it's right, it's right in your backyard. And listen, this for a lot of candidates, this may be their last shot on the stage because as you look at the upcoming December debate in California, only six have qualified. Uh, Tom Steyer, uh, Yang, Gabbard, all of them are on the outside looking in. So a bad night in Atlanta could spell the last time we see them on the debate stage. So that could be it. And, and, and so, you know, there's a lot on the line for some of these candidates that um, this could be the last hurrah. That's right. And again, because there are some who didn't make this debate. It's kind of slowly but surely dwindling in numbers as far as qualifying for the debate. And so I do encourage people, especially those likely Democratic voters, you got to tune in, see what the candidates are talking about. Let us at the AJC help you out. We're going to provide a lot of wraparound coverage to make it all make sense. Tia, thank you very much. You and I, you and I will cross paths again. Hopefully, not you know watching you get escorted out of a all-you-can-eat buffet in <laughs> Tallahassee. Maybe someplace classier than that. But um, anyway, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for thanks for the time. Have some fun tomorrow night and um, enjoy the spin room. 
Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, Tia is off to go cover the day before the debates. Um, and then, of course, she'll be busy Wednesday night for the Democratic debate. Again, if you want to try and follow what she's up to, at TIA Reports, that's the Twitter handle. Um, you can also, of course, read all of her work at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is at AJC. Um, thank you to everybody who has been listening to these podcasts and has reached out and is enjoying them. Thank you so much. Drop a rating and a written review. Um, if you're really enjoying it, tell somebody about them. If you want, uh, if you want to spread the word about what we're up to over here, uh, if you'd like to hit me up on Twitter, you can do that at cheathwftv, or you can email me christopher.heath at wftv. I uh, should have another one of these dropping in your feed sometime after the Democratic debates. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about uh, the governor's budget that he rolled out this week. Maybe we'll talk a little bit impeachment. Or, you know, grab bag. We'll see. Anyway, have a fantastic rest of your week. I will talk to you at least one more time before Thanksgiving, and we'll talk then. Thanks. Bye. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.